Hello, everyone, and welcome to the TMA Ask the Expert podcast series. Today's podcast is entitled Learning About Acute Disseminated Encephalomyelitis. I am Gigi DeFibri from the TMA. We are a nonprofit focused on support, education, and research of rare neuroimmune diseases. You can learn more about us on our website at myelitis.org. This podcast is being recorded and will be made available on the TMA website for download via iTunes. During the call, if you have any additional questions, you can send a message through the chat option available with GoToWebinar. For today's podcast, we are pleased to be joined by Drs. Benjamin Greenberg and Lana Harder from the University of Texas Southwestern in Dallas and Children's Health, Texas. Dr. Greenberg is recognized internationally as an expert in rare autoimmune disorders of the central nervous system. He is the director of the Transverse Myelitis and Neuromyelitis Opticus program at UT Southwestern vice chair of translational research and ambulatory care. He splits his clinical time between seeing both adult and pediatric patients. His research interests are in both the diagnosis and treatment of transverse myelitis, neuromyelitis optica, encephalitis, multiple sclerosis, and infections of the nervous system. Dr. Greenberg is a member of the board of directors of the Transverse Myelitis Association and also chairs the TMA Medical and Scientific Council. Dr. Lana Harder is an assistant professor at UT Southwestern Medical Center, Department of Psychiatry, Neurology, and Neurotherapeutics, Dallas, Texas. She is the clinical neuropsychologist at Pediatric Demyelinating Diseases Clinic. Her research interests include cognitive and psychosocial outcomes for pediatric multiple sclerosis, transverse myelitis, acute disseminated encephalomyelitis, clinically isolated syndrome, and neuromyelitis optica. Thank you both very much for joining us today. Um, we have a lot of questions from the community, but I um, just want to start by asking some basic questions um, to Dr. Greenberg. So what is ADEM, and what causes it, and what are the symptoms? Uh, Gigi, first off, thank you uh, and the TMA for, for hosting today. This is a long overdue podcast for an important topic. Um, ADEM, Acute Disseminated Encephalomyelitis, is uh, defined in its title. It is acute. It happens all of a sudden. It is disseminated, meaning it affects multiple parts of the central nervous system. Uh, there is encephalomyelitis, which means inflammation in both the brain and possibly the spinal cord and optic nerves. So it is a fulminant autoimmune event where the immune system gets confused attacks the brain, spinal cord, and possibly optic nerves, leading to damage of the pathways that control all sorts of functions in the body, uh, including movement, sensation, vision, bowel bladder control, and even our ability to be awake or to process information. So the symptoms can be quite variable from patient to patient, depending on which part of the brain or spinal cord gets affected, but what they all share in common is this fulminant immune-mediated event that does not recur. It is a one-time, one-time only event. Okay, great. And how does ADEM happen, you know, and, and can, what's the disease process um, after several years? And is the immune system um, affected in any sort of way once someone has had ADEM? Yeah, it's a great question. So in our world of neuroimmune diseases, they really fall into two categories. So one category is where the immune system gets confused, goes in and causes damage, 
but is able to put the brakes on and learn that its attack was a mistake and never recurs. And that's idiopathic transverse myelitis and ADEM. And then there are neuroimmune disorders where the immune system gets confused and remains confused. And those are conditions like neuromyelitis optica and multiple sclerosis. So what differentiates a patient with ADEM from multiple sclerosis? Uh, the difference is ADEM patients were had an immune system that was confused momentarily, uh, but was able to put the brakes on. Why the immune system gets confused in the first place is a unanswered question, but the best evidence suggests that this is a post-infectious disorder, that the brain, uh, excuse me, the immune system, while fighting an infection, gets activated and then inappropriately attacks the brain or spinal cord, but then goes into remission and doesn't uh, cause inflammation again. Okay, great. Thank you. And then, um, Dr. Greenberg, there's no clinical trials currently for any of the acute therapies for treating ADEM. Um, so what are these treatments um, that are currently available, and are they the same that, you know, the same treatments that are also used for transverse myelitis? Well, so as you can imagine, there's a lot of overlap between the therapies for ADEM and transverse myelitis because there's a lot of similar features uh, to the notion of an immune system attacking the central nervous system. So the mainstay of therapy for years has been the use of high doses of steroids, corticosteroids, and then the addition of either IVIG, plasma exchange, or sometimes certain chemotherapies like cyclophosphamide or methotrexate. One of the things that differentiates ADEM acute therapy from the acute therapy for transverse myelitis has to do with the organ involved and the anatomy. When the brain is involved in inflammation, there are different secondary complications that can occur that we do not see in transverse myelitis. The most common serious complication that we deal with is increased intracranial pressure, meaning as the brain swells, since it can't get out of the skull and has nowhere to go, secondary damage can occur by restricting blood flow, or by a process called herniation. And in those events, there can be damage to the brain independent of the inflammation. And so some of the therapies we use acutely in ADEM are to bring down that pressure and to uh, help prevent those secondary complications. And then we have a question um, from our uh, one of our members in Utah who um, has ADEM and who has seen eight different neurologists in the past eight years, and, you know, they're just interested in getting help and evaluating whether it's MS versus ADEM, and, of course, you know, it's been an emotional and financial drain on them. So, um, you know, people often hear that ADEM affects mostly children. Um, you know, is this the case? And then will it help to see a physiatrist? And if so, are there any, you know, any uh, providers in Utah that, you know, might be helpful for this situation? Yeah, the long-term consequences of ADEM can be quite varied and some of them can be underappreciated. And I, I know Dr. Harder will, will speak to a lot of those uh, relative to changes in cognition and mood that can happen with ADEM. There are also motor and sensory and bowel and bladder and vision changes. And in general, there is a lot of work to be done uh, after ADEM has occurred relative to recognizing deficits and then intervening from a therapy perspective. 
Uh, in Utah, we're uh, actually involved with a, a group there, uh, Dr. Michael Sweeney, who is a fellow funded by the Transverse Myelitis Association, has spent the year in Utah uh, working at the university there as part of his training. And so the, the group there, uh, led by Stacey Clarkey um, and uh, Mike Sweeney as a fellow, is a great place to go. They're, they have an experience in these autoimmune disorders of the brain and spinal cord. Um, but it is important to remain involved with a neurologist who is familiar with these disorders, uh, who can recognize some of the long-term issues, and then, yes, a physiatrist, a rehabilitation specialist to continually work on improving function. Uh, one of the hallmark features of ADEM, and this is extremely important, is when we look at a piece of brain tissue that's been affected by ADEM, uh, when we look at a biopsy, we see a very unique pattern, and that is a loss of the myelin coating of axons. So the wires that connect the brain to the body have insulation called myelin, and in ADEM, we lose that myelin. But unlike other autoimmune conditions, we see a relative preservation of the axons themselves, meaning a lot of the connections are still intact. So while our bodies are regrowing myelin, which happens slower in adults than children, there is a process of recovery that can occur. There is also the potential to use those intact, denuded wires to get the signals through. But it takes coaching and a variety of techniques from a rehabilitation perspective. So unfortunately, we see patients being told uh, to give up too soon. Whatever you get at three months or six months or 12 months is all you're going to get. And in ADEM, that is not the case. We tend to be aggressive and consistent and persistent with our therapy because while the gains may be slow and tedious and take months and years to occur, the potential for those gains is still quite significant over a long period of time. And then, um, Dr. Harder, are there any um, neuropsychological manifestations of ADEM? And if so, what are they? And how does one treat them in children versus adults? Uh, great question. And first, I'd like to um, echo Dr. Greenberg and thanking the TMA for having me. Um, this is a very important topic and one that I'm uh, very passionate about uh, working on and, uh, and discussing with the community. So um, neuropsychological manifestations of ADEM is an area we are actually really working on to try to describe um, the unique cognitive uh, deficits, cognitive performance that we see in individuals who've experienced ADEM. As Dr. Greenberg said, um, you know, this is more common in children, so we, I think we have a unique opportunity um, as pediatric neuropsychologists to really study this group, um, although as this community is aware, ADEM is uh, fortunately very rare, um, so it can be difficult to get the number of participants in our research studies to be able to make um, general statements about how this shows up neuropsychologically over time. I can say generally um, that our patients do at times experience some long-term consequences. However, these tend to be um, in many cases milder than what we see in those chronic conditions where the um, brain is experiencing insult uh, repeatedly over time because this tends to be a one-hit um, condition, uh, one hit to the brain, um, we can see really tremendous recovery over time. Uh, as Dr. Greenberg mentioned, we really um, uh, 
recommend continuing efforts uh, over beyond that one to two year mark um, because we do see that our kids make um, gains over time. Um, specific things that tend to come up in the research that we've done and some of the other uh, papers who've been published by my colleagues are problems with um, attention, processing speed, how quickly um, an individual can kind of take in information and, and do something with that. Uh, also fine motor skills, so our ability to sort of get ideas um, from our, our head to the, the paper. Um, so those are some of the areas that we see um, more difficulty. Uh, some of our studies show that, uh, again, many of our kids go, go back to baseline and do quite well over the long term. Um, treatment, I would say, uh, between children and adults really does vary because the functional impact of a brain-based medical condition can show up quite differently in the life of a child versus an adult. So our children are attending school, that's their primary job, so we really do tailor our treatments and interventions around what the child is needing. And as you might imagine, that would, would change over um, development. So early on in school, we're asking kids to do different things than we are once they're um, moving into middle school and high school where the demands increase. So we're really tailoring um, those recommendations to the individual and the setting that they're in. Likewise, for adults, we may be looking at things related to um, employment or maintaining a household. So um, uh, once again, those are very much tailored to the individual. And then, Dr. Harder, one of our listeners um, just submitted a question asking about why ADEM patients have more significant mood dips and highs a year or even two years after the attack. That's a great uh, question. So I talk a lot with families about um, in that early phase, um, you know, there's a lot going on the child has been through and the family have been through. Um, something quite unprecedented and uh, in some ways you know this represents um, a trauma for them and for the family system and that can have a unique effect on on behavior um, children show um, mood changes differently than adults do so we have to be mindful of that we may see more um, irritability or anger um, in a child that's having um, some symptoms of depression for example um, so those things can really, um, you know, change over time. Um, as, as the person asked in the question, why does this show up long term? Um, so that I don't think we fully understand. We do know that broadly speaking, demyelinating conditions may be associated with changing in changes in mood. And actually, our research here at UT Southwestern and, and Children's Health found that. Um, with greater a greater duration of time since the onset of ADEM, we saw um, an increase in some behavioral problems, um, attention problems. So there is an idea in the pediatric community that when you've had a change in the brain, that you may grow into a deficit. So we've altered the development of the brain in some way just by um, interfering with development at an early stage. A uh, child's brain is rapidly developing. So if we've, if we've thrown off that developmental trajectory, um, then that may show up in, in different ways across time. So that would be one um, kind of hypothesis that I might have is that those systems in the brain that are regulating mood, emotion, behavior, that those um, have been altered and um, may actually be responsible for some of those changes or those difficulties that we see persisting across time. Okay, and then 
So um, one of another one of our listeners um, was stated that insurance currently doesn't recognize ADEM as um, something that requires cognitive therapy after the attack. So they were just wondering if it would be possible to get ADEM classified as something like a traumatic brain injury so that um, patients with ADEM would be able to be eligible for something like cognitive therapy. Um, so I think ideally uh, that would be the case. Um, we notice challenges with insurance but also are aware that those really vary based on the insurance provider and so uh, each case is going to be different and fortunately you know at our facility and others they have staff that can help look into that and appeal decisions by insurance companies I really uh, do recommend that and I've seen families have success with that I would um, recommend thinking about it as uh, this person stated as a, a brain injury um, there has been an insult to the brain, damage to the brain, uh, which does warrant that rehabilitation and those um, evaluations and assessments going forward. Okay, and then um, Dr. Greenberg, um, we've gotten a lot of um, stories from our listeners about kind of their different experiences with ADEM. Um, one of them is one of our members actually in Denmark wrote to us to ask about her son who was diagnosed with ADEM in 2014. Um, he recovered almost perfectly um, after he was totally paralyzed on the left side, but he still has some sensory deficits. Um, and the muscle tone is all right and he's able to run, but um, you know he still has some sensory issues. Um, are the sensory changes reversible or permanent? Or are there any solutions to stimulate repair to kind of help with those sensory issues? Yeah, so this is, this is a great question because the, the differential recovery between sensation and motor is something that we observe in a large number of patients with ADEM and transverse myelitis. And there's a lot of theories as to why that's the case. Um, the, the, the theory that I, I personally ascribe to that I think is correct is functional recovery happens for two different reasons. So if you, if you have a, a dysfunction after ADEM, and you get better, why did you get better? Well, one is repair. So if you were missing myelin, you could have regrown myelin, and that probably explains in ADEM a large amount of the recovery. But the other mechanism for functional recovery is compensation, your nervous system learning to get the job done with a different anatomy than it used to have. So if it used to have a million wires going from your brain to your leg to control movement, and it lost 300,000, it's got to figure out a way to do the job with 700,000 less. For the motor system, the brain gets instant feedback on successes and failures. So as it tries to get a signal through to the leg, and it fails and it fails and it fails and it fails, and then on Wednesday at 3.30 you start wiggling a toe, it can figure out if I do things this way, this is the notion of plasticity, I can get the signals through and be functional. In sensation, since it's an input and not an output, there is no feedback the nervous system gets to determine if it's feeling the world correctly. So I think where the sensory system is uh, held back in terms of recovery is because of the very nature that it's, that it's an input and it can't get that feedback. So really what we're relying on is repair more than compensation when it comes to sensation. And in ADEM, that repair uh, can happen for a long period of time. In general, the outcomes for recovery on 
the motor and sensory side of things is related to the age of the patient. Our younger kids probably do better than our older ones. That's not a hard and fast rule, but all else being equal, that tends to be uh, true. And so usually what we're waiting on is time. So in, in somebody who has ongoing sensory deficits, we have not proven anything that can help those recover. We are working and have in clinical trials medications that stimulate a body's own reservoir of stem cells to grow new myelin. And so for patients who have had ADEM and have residual deficits, we are getting to a point in time where we may be able to talk about medications that would help repair things. But until that's the case, uh, we're from a sensory perspective, we really need time for the body to heal. Okay, and then this is um, related to the previous question, and another one of our members um, said that they were diagnosed with ADEM seven years ago, and they have a vibration station, sensation that is kind of like a mild electric shock from head to toe all the time that never goes away, and the intensity rises and falls daily for no apparent reason. So, it, you know, and it's obviously uncomfortable to this person. Um, so none of the neurologists they've spoken to uh, know what this is or how to bring relief except through opioid painkillers. Are there any other ways um, to manage pain, um, you know, these, these sorts of sensory pain issues? So uh, uncomfortable sensations, so outright pain, burning, electrical shock, vibration, tightness, um, are not uncommon after ADEM or, or transverse myelitis. The frequency goes up the older the patient is uh, at the time they have the event. Um, in general, the important thing when there is any type of pain is to sort out if it falls into the category of neuropathic pain, and the description that was provided to you sounds like neuropathic pain, versus muscle spasticity or tightness or anything along those lines. But in the world of neuropathic pain, where there's this vibration or burning or buzzing, there is a long list of uh, techniques and medications and interventions we use to try and get control of it. And it's important to understand or at least to have a sense of what we think is going on. In general, what we think is going on is your brain is used to getting sensory input from your body constantly. And it's getting huge gigabytes of data about what's going on in your body second by second and interpreting that data. If all of a sudden we cut off a portion of the input, it has to make sense of the world with incomplete information. And when we force the brain to do that, often we get uh, a misinterpretation of the signals. And so instead of just feeling your hand normally, you feel a buzzing or a vibration because you're not getting the complete picture. And so the buzzing or vibration takes over. And so in those situations, what we have to do is look at medications that act, act on the brain relative to interpreting those signals. So these tend to be medications that are used for seizures or medications that are classically used for depression. Even though we are not treating seizures or depression, they act on receptors in the brain to change the way the brain perceives these signals. So there's easily a dozen different medications that are approved for seizures or depression that we use in this situation, non-opiates, and usually, not always, but usually we can get the sensations to um, diminish or, or be less uncomfortable. 
And so we usually recommend working with clinicians to really sort out, sometimes it's trial and error, which of those medications will work. Sometimes we recommend seeing a pain specialist if your neurologist or physiatrist isn't used to using these medications, and a pain specialist should uh, know how to do them. It is worth noting as well that there are non-prescription uh, medication ways to also handle the pain. And one of the ones that we've had some success with in our clinic is by referring patients to acupuncture. Um, so we find that maybe in a third to a half of our patients who undergo acupuncture for neuropathic pain, they come back and report a benefit from the acupuncture. So that is one non-medicinal way to manage pain. And then the last, which is worth noting, is to work with a comprehensive pain center with psychologists who are trained in pain management. So these are some of Dr. Harder's colleagues who have decided instead of focusing on neuropsychology to look at the psychology of pain management, which has a lot of neuropsych focus in it, meaning the interaction between brain and behavior, and there are techniques that you can learn, they are not intuitive, but that you can learn with the right guidance on how to filter out that pain. So whether it's with acupuncture or working with a pain psychologist, there are a variety of ways beyond medications to try and get better control of these symptoms, and we urge our patients to look into all of those options. And then um, both Dr. Greenberg and Dr. Harder, you both talked about um, the symptoms that can occur after a diagnosis of ADEM, including um, motor weakness, nerve pain or sensory dysfunction, bowel, bladder, and sexual dysfunction, spasticity, depression, and fatigue. Um, are all of these treated in the same way regardless of whether a person has ADEM, MS, NMO, or TM, or do they vary based on the underlying condition? So I'll, I'll take part of that, and then I'll, I'll turn part of it over to Dr. Harder. So um, the answer is complicated. It's yes and no. So one thing to recognize is instead of thinking about uh, is ADEM treated the same way as MS, uh, the important thing is to recognize that there are no two patients that are alike. And so there may be techniques that I use in patients with transverse myelitis and NMO and multiple sclerosis that I use the same techniques in ADEM uh, and vice versa, but in general the key is recognizing that even amongst this condition uh, I have never seen two patients that have the exact same phenotypes. And the reason I, I point out what is patently obvious is because there isn't a single algorithm that can be applied to every patient universally who have a specific diagnosis. There are, are some of our patients who struggle with fatigue and pain, and we find out that it's due to an underlying sleep disturbance. And we focus on fixing the sleep disturbance, and their fatigue and pain go away. There are some individuals who uh, have weakness in pain, and we find out that the pain is secondary to a gait disorder. So when we focus on the gait, their pain goes away. So, so while there are techniques that are universal across the board, um, every care plan has to be individualized. Now, the important thing is that it, there are many more clinicians in the world who are considered appropriately to be experts in multiple sclerosis. There are fewer people in the world who are considered to be experts in ADEM or transverse myelitis, general seeking care with somebody who is an MS expert will yield good results because there are a lot of the techniques that are the same. Where this can differ, quite frankly, I think is in Dr. Harder's world, 
in terms of the neuropsychological aspects of multiple sclerosis and ADEM and how we counsel families in, in how to handle things. So I'd, I'd like to get her input in terms of kind of the unique aspects between these disorders when we get down to the cognitive, behavioral, and mood aspects of the condition. Sure, and I would uh, agree with Dr. Greenberg that the presentation really does vary widely. Um, of course, even within uh, you know the same population of a medical condition, we see uh, vastly different presentations, challenges, um, and you know the symptom presentation uh, may also have varying levels of distress to the patient and family. So, um, I work with families a lot to try to identify what are some of the primary or most distressing symptoms, how can we prioritize those and address those first. What we're learning in our research is that these symptoms that we're seeing are often um, interrelated. And a great example um, would be looking at some of our MS data. We see that um, you know, our patients who are having uh, cognitive difficulties are also having mood difficulties. Um, and those are, you know, significantly associated when we, uh, you know, run our analyses on that. Um, likewise, fatigue is also related to cognitive functioning when we look at variables like sleep. So as Dr. Greenberg mentioned, um, when we address one thing, uh, very likely we are also going to see positive effects and improvements in other areas. So uh, in tailoring our treatment plans for our, each individual patient, uh, no matter what their diagnosis, we're going to be thinking about um, what are the priorities, where can we start so it's not so overwhelming. That was a long list of symptoms and a list of symptoms that's not uncommon in our patients with demyelinating conditions. Um, it wouldn't probably be uh, the best approach to try to tackle everything at once. So uh, we really do um, kind of put those in a, a rank order uh, to see what, what we need to tackle first and then we look at how that might um, improve other areas. Thanks. And then we have a question from a member in the UK. Um, her daughter was diagnosed uh, with ADEM when she was five um, and she's now seven years old. Um, she had multiple lesions on the brain and spinal cord and they said that they, she's not had any relapses but it's been a rough two years with complaints of tiredness, itching scalp, mood swings, behavioral issues, and learning development issues. Um, and they noted that she seems to have some issues seasonally from September to March um, where in, during those times she's in particular very withdrawn and doesn't have any energy and is pale and sleeps more than usual. Um, so she has been pushing her daughter to start vitamin D supplements. Um, but um, so she was just wondering, you know, is there any evidence to support starting something like a vitamin D supplements to prevent something like MS later in time? And also from you know other members in our community, just are there any vitamins that help with recovery after um, something like ADEM? Um, Dr. Greenberg. So uh, this is a good um, and complicated question. Um, so first off, uh, vitamin D relative to ADEM, the the data for vitamin D in this situation uh, is not relative to recovery or symptomatic management. The, the reason we supplement with vitamin D mainly is uh, to help reduce the risk that the immune system would cause inflammation again. And uh, there has not been a prospective controlled study in ADEM, but we pull literature from transverse myelitis and multiple sclerosis 
and given the safety of, of vitamin D, we routinely recommend having vitamin D levels uh, normal to high normal uh, in children and adults who've been affected by ADEM. The struggles that um, are described by this, this family uh, are not completely unusual, um, but need to be investigated in a lot of different ways. So whenever I hear about uh, a pattern emerging of a seasonal issue, um, we always have to be cautious about uh, ascribing cause and effect. And uh, Dr. Harder and I have had this conversation uh, a few times in terms of looking at patterns. So for example, one might look at that pattern and wonder about something, uh, something called seasonal affective disorder or dysthymia, which is an old description of a uh, version of depression that came in the winter. Um, and we would check thyroid levels in these patients and a variety of other things and sometimes find that we were dealing with a primary mood disorder that was just more prevalent. This would be unusual in this age range. Usually we see it in adults and not in children, uh, but it's something that would be considered. But the other thing is to look for other issues that may be presenting this way. So, for example, and I, I uh, asked Dr. Harder to, to comment on this as more of an expert than I, um, as kids who are having potentially academic challenges or other issues are being reintroduced to school, sometimes those challenges manifest in a lot of different ways and um, uh, can impact their behavior. So if we're saying that the season happens to coexist with the school year, if you will, that kids do better in the summer than during the school year, sometimes there isn't a um, direct biologic issue, but more of a uh, social or psychological issue. Um, but in general, this is not a pattern that is uh, typical of ADEM. It seems to be something specific. Uh, and this child is definitely worthy of investigating uh, why it's the case, whether it be vitamin-based, whether it be sleep-based, whether it be depression-based, or something going on at school. Um, Dr. Hart, have you ever seen or something along these lines? So, um, as you said, you know, I believe this is a bit more common in adults, but uh, I commend these parents for making such systematic observations and to pick up on this pattern. I think it uh, it sounds like this is an important thing to know about this child. And um, I would add uh, to the idea Dr. Greenberg alluded to, um, which is what's happening in that time of year. And so uh, being, you know, most of a school year, I think that's a time when we're asking more of our kids, the demands are higher, there are more social pressures in the school setting depending on, um, you know, if um, this child uh, attends school uh, along with same age peers. So um, those would just be some things that would come to mind. Uh, what kind of what else is going on uh, in that window of, of time? But it sounds like, um, you know, the, um, the things that you all have tried has been uh, positive and successful. And so, uh, as we've talked about uh, throughout this podcast, um, those individualized kind of accommodations or, you know, um, approaches to things um, really can make a difference. And so it's knowing the child and, and what their needs are. And if that's yielding um, positive benefits, I think that sounds um, uh, like a great thing. I would just uh, challenge parents to, to think about um, other factors as well that might be um, playing playing into some of this and then certainly um, recommend uh, talking to providers ab about this and what other things could be done. It won't always be practical um, to, to uh, get away uh, to a place with a, a different um, climate. Uh, so thinking about other things that can be done at home uh, to get successfully through the school year I think would, would be a good um, step as well. 
and it's it's worth noting that you know in the um, seasonal uh, affective disorders or dysthymia, there was some literature in the past, and admittedly, I have not kept up with this, but it would be worth talking to uh, your own provider about is uh, the use of light therapy or light boxes uh, during winter time. Uh, these are um, uh, specialized lights that you can sit in front of for about 20 minutes. And for a lot of people with seasonal affective disorder, this really helps correct mood and energy. And uh, it's one of the ways that even sometimes in reverse the diagnosis was made. So it's something to consider talking to uh, healthcare providers about whether or not it's worth a, a trial. And then Dr. Greenberg, we've received questions about um, if there's anything people can do as an ADEM patient to facilitate regrowth of myelin, um, such as foods or supplements. If you just speak a little bit about that. Yeah, we, we really want to find these, the both whether they be medical or holistic or nutritional approaches to regrowing myelin. There is um, not great data for any of them. The, the data that stands out the most for three different supplements are, real, are data that say if you're deficient in these, myelin growth is impaired. Now, does that mean if you take extra, myelin growth is supported? We don't know the answer, but they are all considered safe. And so um, if uh, families want to uh, take these supplements, in general, they are safe, but you do need to talk to your own healthcare provider before starting anything, including a vitamin or a supplement. But the three uh, that have been discussed in the literature the most are vitamin D12, which if you are deficient can impair myelin growth. If your vitamin B12 is normal, we do not see the value of taking extra um, in either animal models or, or uh, looking at clinical patients. The other two, which is, has not been studied as much, are omega-3 fatty acids and alpha-lipoic acid, uh, all three of which, the B12, the omega-3s, and the alpha-lipoic acid, are available over the counter without a prescription, uh, at least in the United States, um, and I, I assume the entire world. The key is please, please, please always remember, even with supplements, diet changes, uh, or any intervention, do involve your healthcare provider uh, so that they can note any specific risks relative to you or your family member, and also so they can track and look for improvements uh, while you are on a regimen. Um, but those three, uh, we know if you're deficient in, can impair uh, myelin growth. And then we've also received um, some questions about immunizations. Um, so one of our members was told that their ADEM was caused by a virus. So is it safe um, to give immunizations to people with ADEM in the future? Um, and so if, you know, a lot of individuals who are diagnosed with ADEM are children, um, should children get all the regularly scheduled vaccines after a diagnosis of ADEM? Yeah, this is a, a great uh, question, obviously a heated and controversial area uh, with a lot of divergent opinions. Um, the Transverse Myelitis Association sponsored a, a podcast not long ago with the entire hour dedicated to issues around vaccinations, and I, I do encourage people to look online and listen to that for a detailed discussion of this. Uh, but in, in summary of that conversation, uh, just briefly, uh, number one, uh, the sense is that children who have had ADEM should continue with their vaccine schedule. Uh, what we do see is the viruses that we are protecting against 
can independently cause damage to the brain. And the risk of vaccines after you've had ADEM uh, is considered to be negligibly small. Uh, I know it's an emotional issue, but uh, I have yet to see a single ADEM patient or read a report of a single ADEM patient who had a recurrence of inflammation after vaccination. And so uh, when weighing the risks and benefits of vaccination, our standard recommendation in our clinic uh, is to vaccinate. There may be um, uh, exceptions to that generalized rule, so please discuss with your individual practitioner if there is a, a concern about allergies or reactions or anything along those lines. But from an ADEM-only perspective, uh, the thought is that vaccination is not only safe to do, but recommended. And then relatedly, Dr. Greenberg, we've gotten a few questions about um, the relationship between ADEM and viral infections. So um, you mentioned earlier that ADEM is often post-infectious. So one of our members asked about if herpes zoster is one of the viruses that can you know, potentially lead to ADEM. And then also for people who've had ADEM, you know, there's been discussion in the news about the Zika virus. Um, and, you know, if there's, for someone who's had ADEM, if the Zika virus then potentially poses a risk for people who have been previously diagnosed but have recovered. Yeah, so the, these are great questions and, and they separate into two categories. One has to do with causation and the other has to do with risk moving forward. So in terms of causation, um, as you can imagine, if there is inflammation in the brain, it can be extremely difficult to sort out if the inflammation is there because of an active viral infection in the brain, or is the inflammation there after a virus has been cleared by the body and the immune system is just confused. So in one scenario, the immune system's fighting an infection, and in the other, the infection is long gone out of somewhere else in your body and the inflammation is there by mistake. In general, when a child especially meets the criteria for ADEM and we treat them as if there is no infection, they get better. If there was an active infection and we were suppressing the immune system, we would expect for things to potentially even get worse and we don't see that. So most of the data for ADEM suggests that it's not an active infection in the brain but a post-infectious event. Now, for everybody, the trigger for ADEM can be quite different. So in some children, the trigger could be influenza. In some children, the trigger could be a bacteria called mycoplasma. In some children, uh, the trigger could be a completely different virus. And so the trigger for the immune system can be different across lots of people. Um, but in general, the infection has left the body and the immune system is there by mistake. Is it possible to have an active viral infection of the brain causing, eliciting the immune response? The answer is yes. Um, usually uh, zoster doesn't do this. Usually uh, herpes zoster, which causes chicken pox and causes uh, shingles, also known as varicella zoster, um, causes a very specific pattern of damage in the brain. And while it can be at times confused for ADEM, the treatment for it would be very specific and without that treatment, people te would tend not to get better. So if somebody was treated as ADEM and got better, then the likelihood of it being a zoster event is pretty small. Now, moving forward in the world of Zika and in the world of zoster, could viral infections re-trigger ADEM? 
the answer is basically no. Um, and the reason is the event was a perfect storm. Um, and so uh, without that perfect storm, you, you had to have the viral infection at the right time in the right circumstances of your immune system. I mean, it's, it's, the odds are at the level of winning a lottery, although this is not a lottery anyone wants to win. And so we don't see recurrent viral infections trigger new ADEM events. Um, can a new virus give you encephalitis? So could you have had ADEM as a child and then, like any of us, get exposed to Zika and develop a, an active infection from Zika? The answer is yes, but we don't see it re-triggering uh, ADEM later. And then, um, Dr. Harder, I have a question for you. Um, one of our members um, had an ADEM episode back in August 2012, um, and they were 28 years old. Um, so they found that when they're concentrating a lot, they get very mentally drained, and they were just wondering if these symptoms are ever going to subside or it's just kind of what their new normal is. And it, they seem to not really be able to figure out why, when their symptoms are going to come on. So you know, all of a sudden they're just super exhausted. So they're just curious about why they're still experiencing symptoms after almost four years of diagnosis. Well, that's a, that's a great question. And um, one that I would say we're still working on answering when it comes to the research. Um, however, it is common for us to hear that symptoms of fatigue, cognitive fatigue specifically, do persist uh, years after the event. Um, so this idea of a new normal uh, you know, perhaps, or at least perhaps in this, this window of time, um, I would also, um, this was a person I was uh, speaking to in my office, I would be uh, talking about a lot of other things that might be, um, uh, you know, impacting levels of fatigue, cognitive fatigue, um, everything from, you know, sleep, uh, diet, exercise, things that we know may, um, may relate to how uh, rest or how well we can do cognitively when we're um, expected to, to sit for long periods and concentrate. So um, also thinking about environmental things that could be addressed, um, if that's uh, reducing distractions, taking uh, regular breaks, uh, getting up, walking around. Um, so um, those would be some, some things I would wonder about if those have been tried and um, if all of those other things are okay. Um, thinking about talking to a provider about um, how that could be addressed. Um, I wish I had a more satisfying answer to the question about, you know, timeline and what we can expect um, in terms of that prognosis, but um, I think that's a difficult one to answer um, and that something that a provider may be able to, to address a little bit more specifically just with more information about the, the course. And then also um, someone, one of our members, um, mentioned that they were currently waiting for a neuropsychologist assessment and they've been on the waiting list for about 18 months. So Dr. Harder, while waiting for an assessment, is there anything someone should do or look for in that in the meantime? Uh, yes, most definitely. Um, and I'm aware that uh, neuropsychology practices can get very busy. 18 months is a long time and um, in that window of time I would imagine that the needs um, of, of the person waiting for assessment could be changing. And um, so I think it's going to be important to um, 
you know, certainly continue to observe and uh, keep track of, maybe journal um, any concerns uh, relative to uh, learning problems, mood, um, uh, fatigue, so that when the evaluation comes, you'll have that information ready to go. I would also consider um, asking that facility where they're on a wait list um, for a list of other providers in the community. Um, and if that doesn't yield uh, anything, maybe uh, checking online with the American Board of Professional Psychology, where you can search for board-certified uh, clinical neuropsychologists by zip code. Um, so maybe thinking about another um, alternative if, if you know, it's taking so long to get in. And then if this is a person of school age thinking about um, approaching the school about an assessment, particularly if the problems are impacting learning. Um, and, you know, in public schools that's paid for, that's a you no know, out-of-pocket cost to um, the family. So that's something that I always mention um, as an alternative if we can't uh, get in to see the, the neuropsychologist um, right away. And um, Dr. Greenberg, we had a question um, about someone who had ADEM at 26 years, um, when they were 26 years old, and they said that they recovered extremely well, but they were wondering if there were any risks for um, if they, you know, eventually wanted to get pregnant and have a baby because of the ADEM, or um, also if it's genetic or it could possibly be passed on to their children. Yeah, so this is, uh, again, another good question. So in general, um, just because you have had ADM, there is no unique risk to either pregnancy or labor and delivery. Um, so any risk associated with pregnancy or labor and delivery is based on physical functioning and health uh, and not just the mere fact that you have had ADEM. So if somebody had had ADEM and had not recovered the ability to walk, there are certain risks with being paraplegic, and um, they're small. We, we, we have paraplegic patients get pregnant and have babies all the time, but the risks are associated to the function, not the fact that you had ADM. So in general, there's no unique precautions that have to be taken. Uh, we do not consider the pregnancies high risk. There are no special uh, obstetricians that are needed, and we encourage our obstetrical colleagues to treat these patients just like they would anybody else. Um, relative to the genetics aspect uh, with ADEM, uh, there has not been a good genetic study in ADEM, uh, like the investments made in multiple sclerosis and others. But in general, we do not see uh, multi-generational families with this condition. So I do not consider this a genetic disease that you pass down onto your children, and any genetics would be um, relative to risk. Uh, and if we look to the world of multiple sclerosis as the, the closest comparator, that risk is only in the 2 to 3% range. And I would expect ADEM to be even less than that. And so in general, we do not worry about um, uh, having to do special testing or screening or treating or anything along those lines for the children of people who have had ADEM. It, the one note I would make is for anyone who has been diagnosed with ADEM as an adult, uh, we always recommend making sure you keep in touch with a neurologist because there is a higher rate of ADEM being the first manifestation of multiple sclerosis or other recurrent diseases in adults than there is in children. And so when we're talking about adults with ADEM, their follow-up 
is more intensive and even longer from a monitoring perspective for recurrent inflammation. Uh, because in kids, we really don't see the recurrent inflammation much at all, but in adults, there's a higher rate. And then also, Dr. Greenberg, we've gotten several questions related to rehabilitation and recovery. So um, one of our members, you know, asked about the fact that they, when they do exercise, it kind of seems to set them back. And then others have asked about, you know, it's been, they've seen recovery, but it's been, you know, 14 months uh, and improvement continues to seem very slow. Um, is there any chance for further recovery or improvement? Yeah, so um, to answer the second question first, the answer is yes. So we will see patients with ADEM um, uh, have faster recovery earlier on, and the longer you go, the slower the rate of change. But it, I don't see it stop. It may become far less perceptible on short-term basis, but over large epochs in time, you can observe meaningful addition of function. The key is persistence. Recovery with ADEM um, especially as you get out more than a year or two, doesn't happen just naturally. You don't wake up one morning with improved function. It happens through asking your body to improve function, which means regular physical therapy. And so in general, we don't have an endpoint for that physical therapy. Uh, the endpoint is uh, the point at which you choose you don't really want to pursue having any more additional improvement in function. And then that's your endpoint. If you wish to have improving function, then you keep going with the therapy. To the, the point that was made, though, that therapy can be draining, this, this is a, um, a well-recognized but not well-discussed issue in uh, rehab for our patients. So once the axons have, have lost their myelin, they are much more susceptible to the environment, and the fatigability of patients increases dramatically. And so one of the things we remind patients is there may be times of day when you're going to be better than others at, at doing rehab. Morning tends to be better than afternoon. Cool environments tend to be better than warm environments. Um, doing the cardiac work of rehab should happen at the end of rehab, not at the beginning, because if you do it at the beginning, the rest of what you do, you won't have as much strength or endurance to do it. Pool therapy tends to be the best because it keeps your body temperature lower and you can do more without uh, losing as much energy. And so there are a lot of energy conservation techniques that we encourage people to do. And then we also remind them that you need the rest of your lifestyle to support this energy expenditure. So sleep and diet become very important. It is hard to do these rehabilitation techniques without adequate sleep or without a well-balanced diet. And then finally, uh, we involve uh, our colleagues like Dr. Harder to, to look for even other issues. If you are having struggles cognitively, uh, that can be exhausting for, for our kiddos who really have to work harder to process the math work in class. By the time they get home, they could be spent. And so part of this is looking for all of the areas where uh, somebody could be expelling energy that we could conserve and try and maximize that conservation. And then we have another question from our community. Um, someone said that their daughter had ADEM at two and a half and then fully recovered. Um, they've noticed, they haven't noticed any residual problems and her MRI at six months was totally clear 
and her neurologist said she didn't even need to continue to be seen, which was hard for um, this person to believe. Um, so is it is it yeah. possible? Is it really possible that they don't need to be concerned and don't need to follow with a neurologist? Dr. Harder, I'm going to refer to you on this one because I know this is one of your favorite topics. Okay, great. Well, that's a that's a wonderful report to have from your provider. And I would just say, um, as I mentioned earlier in the podcast, that when we've had an insult to the brain early on during rapid periods of development and growth, we just have to be mindful that as we go forward, we can see uh, a child quote, grow into deficits, meaning that as the brain changes and continues to develop and concurrently the demands in our environment increase, so we're going to be asked to do more and more to be more independent over time. Um, as, we, as these things happen, we have to be mindful that um, there could be some challenges that emerge over time um, and that we may need to address. So uh, we can be very optimistic that that won't be the case, but um, to be, uh, you know, cautious and even proactive, um, you know, having regular follow-ups, at least in our clinic, um, we like to follow our kids uh, through that middle school period for sure and maybe even beyond depending on how they do over time. So that would be the only word um, of, of caution that I would give there is just um, to be looking for any signs of emerging, um, say, attention problems, memory difficulties, behavioral changes, mood changes, anything like that that might need to be um, assessed and then addressed through um, some sort of intervention or treatment plan. And and if I could add to that just from the neurologist's perspective, so so for everyone listening to the podcast, this will be a, just a, a dirty little secret about the world. Neurologists get very um, little training, relatively speaking, to relative to some of these complex issues on development over time after a brain injury, which sounds shocking. It should be one of the mainstays of our training. But in general, um, we, we are very heavily focused on motor, visual, sensory, bowel bladder functioning, and it's, it's our neuropsychology colleagues that really spend their careers on the integration of all these different aspects relative to cognition and, and academic growth and personal growth and mood and behavior and, and how that all intersects. And so um, outside of multidisciplinary clinics, uh, most neurologists, and, and through no fault of their own, this is, this is part of our training, put the premium on how does the patient look before me right now and how does the MRI look. And uh, even I included myself in that category uh, really until our multidisciplinary care model really expanded and I had the benefit of learning from colleagues like Dr. Harder and our physiatrists and our nurses and our social workers and our ophthalmology technicians about getting a 20,000 foot view of these kids. And in general, we, as Dr. Harder said, recommend regular follow-up as long as we're following up with people who are actually asking the questions and, and looking for any of the things that could change. And these, for a lot of our follow-ups, they end up being a social visit, quite frankly. Some of the follow-ups are, how are kids going? We check in with school, we check in with an exam, and thankfully for a lot of our kids, we, we get reassured that everything is good. But there's, you know, every year the kids we find who looked good at age four, but at age six, seven, eight, or nine, we start to see some issues that are probably related to the ADEM insult, 
that we can address before those children become 11, 12, or 13. And so that's why we tend to recommend regular follow-up. And unfortunately, we've actually run out of time, but I just want to thank um, both Dr. Greenberg and Dr. Harder for um, joining me at this podcast. Um, we answered a lot of community questions, and we hope to answer more in coming podcasts. And I just wanted to remind everyone that um, this will be available on our website um, as a recording. So thank you again. Thank you. Thank you.